0: This episode of Pop Health Week is sponsored by Health Innovation Media. Health Innovation Media brings your brand narrative alive both on the ground and in the virtual space for major trade show, conference, and innovation summits via our signature pop-up studio. Connect with us at www.popupstudio.productions. I'm Greg Masters, Managing Director of Health Innovation Media, publisher of acowatch.com, and your Pop Health Week co host with my partner co-founder, Fred Goldstein, president of Accountable Health, LLC, a Jacksonville, Florida-based consulting firm. Our guest today is Dr. Dennis Flores, assistant professor at the University of Pennsylvania School of Nursing, an affiliated faculty member at the Gender, Sexuality, and Women's Program, and visiting professor at the Center for Research on AIDS at Yale University's School of Public Health. Dr. Flores has led several studies that investigate the role of parents in sexual health education of their adolescent sons who identify as LGBTQ. Dr. Flores earned his Ph.D. from Duke University, a Master's in Public Health Nursing Leadership at Emory University, and a Bachelor's Degree in Nursing from Kennesaw State University in Georgia.
1: Thank you so much, Greg. And Dr. Flores, welcome to Pop Health Week. Thank you so much for having me. It's really a pleasure. Very excited about this conversation. It gets into an area that I worked in a while ago, and there's been a lot of change in it. So, first, perhaps, could we start with you giving a little bit of your background and what you do at UPenn and some of your research?
2: Yeah, definitely. I am an assistant professor in the School of Nursing at the University of Pennsylvania. This is my second year, but prior to that, I was actually an HIV AIDS nurse at the bedside in Atlanta at Grady Hospital. So my first job out of nursing school in the mid-2000s, the early 2000s, really was in a 42-bed unit, which turned out to be the very last AIDS-dedicated hospital wing for people with HIV and AIDS. So I did that, uh, doing bedside care for a couple of years, and then I moved around in the city doing ICU at some point and then research nursing. But eventually, um, coming back to Grady, coming back to that unit, because it really is where my passion lies and on, on my off days I also did work in the community doing HIV prevention so I, I feel like I just found my niche right out of nursing school and then one of those things that happens is you don't plan for it but you get you, you signed up for grad school and my master's turned into a PhD all the while still concentrating on HIV/aiDS particularly HIV prevention involving youth and their family so I had to move to Durham in North Carolina for my PhD at Duke University. Again, very engaged with that local community and the LGBTQ community. And then finishing my degree and then moving up to Philadelphia for a postdoc and eventually just staying within the university where I currently still am. I do teach. I do have a class that uh, on a regular basis, it's social determinants of health. And it's an undergraduate course where we do talk about all of these other myriad factors that affect people, taking into account these social determinants that really are intractable, the relationships are intractable uh, with one's health. So yeah, in a nutshell, that's me.
1: Yeah, fantastic. And you, you brought up right away this whole issue of social determinants of health. And could you talk about, you know, we've been discussing on this show, the issues of health disparities and the social determinants, etc. over the last couple of weeks. Can you talk about how they impact specifically those living with HIV and AIDS.
2: Oh, most definitely. From the very early years of the local epidemic, the U.S. epidemic, there had been specific subpopulations that were more disproportionately affected by HIV and AIDS. And it really is not a surprise. You know, historically, we know that this issue was closely linked with men who have sex with men. And back in the day, in the the 80s, this was actually a, a gay white man's disease. But even during those years, there was not much focus being given on other subpopulations that did bear disproportionate burden. I'm thinking about men who have sex with men from minority communities, from immigrant communities. And so there are specific subpopulations that by virtue of, say, their socioeconomic status, or their race and ethnicity, compounds one's risk for eventual infection or for transmission. And so while people would like to believe that it's a primarily behavior-driven issue, there are still some tangible factors that, as I said, if you have two or three risk factors, and I'm using air quotes as I say that, it does dramatically increase your risk for
1: infection or transmission. And you also, I know in one of the articles, you talked about this issue of demedicalizing HIV and looking at it more from a community perspective, et cetera. Could you touch on that and how that's impacting it?
2: Oh, definitely. So, you know, we're looking now at 30 30- plus years of HIV AIDS here in the United States. And one may look at it from just a purely medical point of view of of the science of transmission and who is most likely to transmit and who is most likely to be at risk for it. But beyond that surface, if we look at the individuals who are most at risk, then we can start considering their lived experiences and the trends that go with that. For example, my current work, uh, I work with young adolescents and young adults who identify as gay, bisexual, or queer males. What we know is that a lot of teenagers or those folks in their early 20s, they grew up in a world where we knew the science of HIV. We knew the medicine of HIV and AIDS. Yet despite that, we have decades upon decades of them being the most at risk. And why is that? Why, why is our public health programming seemingly ineffective when we already know what the virus is and how it's transmitted, right? And what that shows is it's actually an indictment on some of these other factors that we're just not doing so well with. For example, I'm thinking of sex education in the public school setting. I'm thinking about, you know, are there programming that assists this specific subpopulation as they come of age? are there mentoring programs that might be inclusive of somebody who is questioning their sexual orientation? So this is not technically falling under the, the rubric of medical programming or, or you know things that happen in the medical setting. But really, what are the social opportunities out there beyond the walls of a hospital that we need to be focusing on as well. So that's what I meant by less on the medicalization, but more of really considering the entire package, the entire socio-ecological factors that surround uh, those who are vulnerable for HIV infection.
1: And you talked about those who are vulnerable, and obviously now we have PrEP, and perhaps you can explain that for our audience first. But then how is that being impacted, maybe the distribution of PrEP or the ability to get PrEP depending upon the community you live in, et cetera?
2: Yeah. So pre-exposure prophylaxis really is is a medication that people with HIV in, uh, use. We, we've come a long way from uh, the 80s where it used to be um, a cocktail medication where folks would have 10, 15 different pills that they had to take every day or several hours, several times each day. And now we've got medications that it's it's a one pill that folks can take and keep uh, the HIV at a very managed level where they don't progress to AIDS or you know they have a good immune system with this one medication and in the last few years since 2012 it has been shown that people without HIV if they take this medication once a day, it would actually diminish their risk for contracting HIV from a partner that might transmit the virus so you know this is groundbreaking take. An HIV, uninfected person taking a prophylaxis, a pill, every day essentially can be about 97% effective in keeping keeping them from becoming infected. And while that's wonderful, there still are, though, some barriers for folks in, in getting this medication. For example, um, it's not cheap. You need to, it's several thousand dollars worth a month to, to be on this medication. And for some folks, their health insurance their coverage might not allow for them to, you know, have minimal copay to to be able to access this uh, on a regular basis. And so unfortunately there's still I mean there are some programs that do allow for, for folks who need subsidies or sliding scale programs so that folks who are the most at risk are able to access it. But on the whole, there still are some just structural barriers that keep folks from, say, just going to the pharmacy and, you know, like an over-the-counter medication.
1: And also, how much of that might be community awareness, and how much of that might be lack of access to physicians who might prescribe it? Are we seeing those as issues as well when you look at PrEP?
2: Oh, yes. Uh, and you totally hit it in the head there. Um First, there are specific subpopulations, not just those folks who are LGBTQ, who don't have the most up-to-date information, that this is actually part of their arsenal for HIV prevention. And I'm thinking most of the initial work uh, for PrEP has been focused on it being used by men who have sex with men. Um, And we know that, for example, women of childbearing age, they certainly can um, have great use for PrEP but it's only been in the last few years that marketing for that specific population has been catching up or has started. And so there's that lack of education there, and it's slowly trickling down, but certainly there's room for opportunities to really emphasize this or normalize this as an option within those communities. Additionally, while HIV care is not a Folks who take additional um, certifications or additional classes, providers are able to jump on board and know how to manage HIV and AIDS and even uh, prescribe PrEP. It's not. There still are some areas in the medical industry where there's stigma surrounding, say, sexuality, discussions around safe sex. There's still a lot of work in terms of having medical providers be comfortable in broaching this topic, especially with different members of the population. Um, And that's one of the things that I'm mindful about as a nurse, as we train the future cadre of Nurses and nurse practitioners really normalizing ways to to bring up sexuality as just a routine part of one's life, such as their appetite or such as wellness issues, and and having free flowing conversations so that prep or other technologies become just a routine part of of a medical visit.
1: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And what about in terms of you know other things going on in the community? I know in some of your Articles and research, you look at things like even diet and its impact of the access to food and other things. Obviously, I guess if we help with those as well, we could potentially see better outcomes in those who are living with HIV.
2: It's not been my work of, as of the most recent times, but definitely mm-hmm. there was a point, and I still feel like there are some subpopulations of, especially men who have sex with men, where they need to be considering uh, if they're on older regimens of the medication, diet and, uh, you know, Medication that they have to take in with food is a consideration. And there's a lot of folks who are, you know, still belong to l- lower socioeconomic status uh, within this community. And so if we're thinking about, especially if you're, if you're on fixed income, how rich is your diet that would be ideal for all the other meds that you're taking, not just for HIV? Or would you rather have to pay for rent? Or would you rather pay for another item that is part of your budget? that is a very valid consideration
1: and i know a lot of your work has focused on teens and just as people are beginning to grow up again in the teen years or a little bit older than that and you know whether it's talking with their parents about their sexuality or coming out what sort of things are you finding in that population and are there differences when we look at socioeconomic status or communities that may be handling that differently
0: And if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Pop Health Week. Our guest is Dr. Dennis Flores, assistant professor at the University of Pennsylvania School of Nursing, an affiliate faculty at the Gender, Sexuality, and Women's Program, and a visiting professor at the Center for Research on AIDS at Yale University's School of Public Health.
2: Younger generations of LGBTQ adolescents are coming of age, particularly uh, boys who identify as having same sex attractions, behaviors of identity or identities. So for example, as I've been looking into sex communication, you know, this whole notion of the talk or the conversation about the birds and the bees, it's been an area that's been studied for about 40 years now. And majority of the studies we know Yeah, definitely. It's very nuanced the way I believe to have upfront conversations about sex and condom use and contraception. They pretty much involve heterosexual parents with their heterosexual adolescents, which is understandable. Majority of the population are heterosexual folks. And the thing, though, is that we've missed an opportunity to incorporate parents as wellness ambassadors or even HIV prevention agents for their kids who happen to be LGBTQ or those who identify as gay teenagers. And so my work has started to look at, well, what are the experiences of these teens with same-sex attractions? And can we expect parents who are getting on board and more accepting of folks who are LGBTQ, can we expect straight parents to actually hold up a condom to us to a teenage boy and say this is not just for pregnancy prevention but it can also be used for anal sex and leave it at that you know it's almost a paradigm shift when when folks hear the kind of work that i do but i feel that the trend is there is more social acceptance of LGBTQ individuals in the last few years. And then another trend that we can't disregard is that LGBTQ adolescents are coming out at earlier and earlier ages compared to generations like myself. And so those two things, parents being more accepting of LGBTQ adolescents and these adolescents coming out at earlier ages means that the number of years they live at home with their parents are actually, you know, it it extends opportunities for parents to partner with kids before they go out of the house and start acting out on their burgeoning sexuality or their curiosities or experimentation. And I think it's a perfect time to start looking at how can we start arming parents with the right kind of information for the right adolescent population that then will minimize their risk for HIV and STIs. So that's what I'm trying to do. Instead of just the talk about the birds and the beasts, What about the unicorn? Can we include the unicorn child's uh, perspectives or
1: questions? Right, and and let me ask you, so as a parent, where could parents or, or other individuals go to find that information to help them work through that to be able to have that conversation?
2: Oh, so there are a lot of resources online. There are a lot of resources in their local communities, especially urban and semi urban areas where you know you have LGBT centers or even healthcare related facilities that are now becoming a lot more LGBTQ competent. The task at hand for parents though is sifting through all of that information, all of that online resource to figure out what's legitimate. Or what's credible versus those that are not. Because unfortunately, to this day, there still are some interventions, and I'm using air quotes on that, or some uh, programming that we know is not correct, such as reparative therapy, curing away Mm -hmm. the gay, you know, that comes out in snazzy-looking websites with all of these testimonials that if you're not really a very discriminating parent, you might think, oh, this looks legit, when really it can be very harmful. And so part of the work that I'm doing at the School of Nursing is coming up with additional resources or partnering with parents to come up with ways that we can package the, the information that's been vetted, the information that's most useful for them,
1: and to make that accessible for them. I think, you know, at the end of the day, this is about allowing people to live their lives and be healthy. And so by getting this information out early and appropriately to individuals, then they can make the appropriate decisions as they go forward. When you think about that, have you? it looks like you've done some studies and research on differences and when parents have good relationships and are able to talk about this issue with their children, their young LGBTQ children versus um, parents that maybe struggle with that. Are there differences we now see in the health and the results of those individuals as they have those conversations? So I wish that I did have definitive answer that shows
2: differential outcomes between parents who do talk versus parents who don't. It's a little early in the research for Uh for me to to say that with, with a full amount of confidence. But with with a lot of the work that we've done so far, what we know, though, is for the teens who received inclusive information that has normalized or affirmed for them that being queer, being gay is is a non-issue, it seems like... They know more than those teens who do not have parents who normalize information for them and their mental health is actually better or on a more positive level than those teens who didn't have the opportunity to come out and be forthright with those parents. We also know from other studies that if parents are more open in their communication with their teens, those teens are able to access sexual and reproductive health services a little bit better than those teens who didn't have that benefit as they were growing up. It's also been associated with sex communication being affirming with accessing PrEP, and those studies are in the early stages, and further investigation needs to be done to to really say, oh, X leads to Y, but it's very promising uh, is what I, I, what I can say, which is why I'm staying on this track and really Uh trying to establish the science
1: around that. Right. But, but in essence, you're seeing some of the precursors that you would expect to see in the differences in those groups. And ultimately over time, hopefully as you study it more, you will see that. And and you mentioned something around the mental health of the individuals being more improved. You know, it, 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 in the end, while we go through our teen years and it's a struggle and separation from your parents, etc., there's still people that have a fair amount of respect from us as individuals. So if they're able to say these messages and talk in an appropriate way and discuss it with their kids, it typically would be listened to. Wouldn't that be true?
2: That is definitely true. Um, I started this line of questioning um, in North Carolina really just focused on sexual health because, as a nurse, that's you know, it I was really uh, gung ho and focused on the medical outcomes. And I'm thinking anything that just leads to the reduction of STIs and HIV in particular is a win for me. And incidentally, and I wasn't looking for this, but it just steadily. Uh, came out in the data, it was being volunteered by our initial set of participants in North Carolina and now here in Philadelphia, that hearing about inclusive information, while it leads to them being more comfortable with notions of taking care of oneself, condom use, avoiding HIV and STIs, it also apparently is proxy for parental acceptance. And so what that means is if a kid hears about gay sexuality as a normalized concept at home, while they're getting the benefit of, as I said, condom use and accessing reproductive health services, it's also signaling to them that, you know what, nothing is wrong with this sexuality. And so depression, suicidality, we think it also has an impact there. I haven't fully established it yet, but anecdotally, uh, there are some positive uh, repercut- positive impact on the mental health, I think. And this is where actually two of my current study
1: right now this summer
2: is looking into.
1: That's great. And so as we're thinking about this in the future, what areas do you think we should focus on or where do you think we could get the most impact early uh, within this community to help individuals one, you know, practice safer sex, understand prep, have those opportunities to 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 do that. Are there certain things you think are gonna have the, the most impact going forward?
2: Well definitely I would my work is staying focused on, on the family, uh within the home. So partnering with schools is definitely an option because uh that is where majority of kids spend their time during the day. Well this and this is prior to COVID, and hopefully this is the reality that we'll go back to. So for example, Mm -hmm. having school nurses normalize this and actually start having conversations with adolescents for whom this might be relevant, or even having our science teachers or those folks who provide sex ed throughout elementary, middle school, or high school, if they can start incorporating LGBT health, or at least acknowledging these identities and these orientations, That would go a long way in supporting what parents might be saying at home. And so we have these two um, ecological factors, really, uh, that has a direct uh, interaction with the youth population, um, saying, providing consistent messaging. Then I think we are hopefully, and I'm very optimistic, uh, we can make a dent in um, addressing the needs of this population.
1: Obviously, Dennis, we're living now in this world of covid How is that impacting uh, this population and LGBTQ people in general?
2: Oh, most definitely. There's a lot of pertinent issues regarding COVID and LGBTQ individuals. For my population of adolescents and young adults, the reality is, while I said earlier that majority of these kids are coming out at earlier ages, many of them still are not out, and that's just the nature of things. Um, and so, if you're a high school student who was at, who is out at school but wasn't at home, now that you're at home full time, there's really a consideration for you know you're not living your most true, honest self. Same thing with college kids who are who used to live in another state because they were in school and now had to be back home, and suddenly having to go back into the closet, and that's one of those. Uh, mental health issues that we talk about and are concerned about. Now, in terms of the, and I'm using air quotes, classic case of COVID patients or those most at risk, older folks, Um, a lot of elder LGBTQ uh, folks who may live in nursing homes or who may live by themselves. Prior to the pandemic, social isolation is a major concern for them because unlike their straight peers, you know, they don't have families. They don't have kids that they raise who are now looking out after them. A lot of them are probably just living with a partner or with a few friends. And so social isolation uh, needed to be uh, addressed even prior to the pandemic. And now that we have social restrictions in place, folks needing to be quarantined. It's even more grave. We need to check up on these LGBTQ elders to make sure that they have sufficient support as they're stuck at home, just as the younger folks are. And I really wish uh, we had programming that
1: was geared towards addressing that. That's a fascinating problem. Have you seen anything out there that is like that, that would reach out to these individuals and at least provide them with some sort of a, a connection?
2: Yeah, all I know are anecdotal stories from friends or from a random email that says, hey, we're doing this effort for this high-rise nursing home. But really, in terms of an actual solid program in a specific city, I have not come across that. Now, granted, it might be out there. It's just not something that I'm particularly focused on, uh, but I would love Mm -hmm. to... I would love to, you know, hope that there are coordinated efforts that address this
1: subpopulation of LGBTQ older adults. Hopefully what we can do is create that impetus, see the change begin to start to happen, and flow throughout to all of those individuals, whatever the community is in that they're being struggling with. So thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. Great. Back to you, Greg.
0: And thank you, Fred. That is the last word on today's broadcast. I want to thank Dr. Dennis Flores, assistant professor at the University of Pennsylvania School of Nursing, for his time and generous insights today. For more information on Dr. Flores' work in this space, do follow him on Twitter via at... D-F-L-O-R-E-S-R-N, that's D-Flores-R-N, and the school's work at Penn Nursing, respectively. And for more information on the school, go to www.nursing.upenn.edu. For Pop Health Week, my colleague Fred Goldstein and Health Innovation Media, this is Greg Masters saying, please stay safe, everyone. We are in this together. And we will get through this if we toe the line on social distancing, proper hygiene, and by all means, please wear those masks in public. There is power in masking. Bye now.